This is the Christian Arnest, but today we are just going to be hearing my father talk about having no other gods before God, part two of the Ten Commandments series of 12-part series, because we don't know how to count. Here you go. All right, so we are in week two of our series on the Ten Commandments. How many weeks is this going, Christian? Twelve weeks on the Ten Commandments. That's just crazy. Um, so let's, let's uh, start off with prayer first. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this opportunity to, um, to just teach, Lord, on this subject. And I pray that you would just, that the Holy Spirit would just move in the hearts of these students, Lord, and, and things as we talk about the God of self or the God of me, that you would just illuminate those things that have been taking uh, your place in our lives. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So jumping right in, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3, and it says, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, we exclusively, intensively went through this when we did the Gods at War series last fall. And we spent at least eight or nine weeks talking about very common false gods that we would worship. Um, you know, things like, you know, money, uh, relationships, video games, sports, just all those things, pursuit of, of power, all those things that take the place of God in our life. And so it occurred to me that I didn't want to beat the dead horse or the dead cow, so to speak, up on the screen. And so what we're really going to talk about is what is the root of all of those? The root of all of those is the God of me. When you and I put ourselves in the place of God in our life, that's where all those other things come from. And so in order to talk about that, let's go right back to the beginning with Adam and Eve. And it said, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So, one rule. And then it goes on, and God creates Eve out of Adam's side. And then... One day in the garden, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate it. Now, I know we've talked about this before, but it's always good to come back and do a review on what really happened in the beginning. Notice that it says that she took some, ate it, and then gave it to her husband, and he ate it. And a lot of times we think that you know, Eve is off by herself, and, and Satan tempts her, and she does this, and then she finds Adam somewhere, and and, and, you know, tells him about it, and he eats some. That's not what happened. Adam was right there watching this whole thing go down. And I don't know exactly what he was thinking, but I can guess. 
I can guess that, number one, God told him to take care of the garden and to tend it, and he allows Satan to come in. First thing Adam should have done was as soon as, the, as soon as Satan enters the garden, he kicks him out. No, you're not welcome here. He sees what's happening, and I think he was thinking, man, I, I wonder what would happen if we ate the fruit of what God told us not to eat. Oh, look at this. My wife. And he watches this scene unfold. He doesn't step in to stop it. He doesn't defend her. He doesn't say, nope, we're not doing this. He waits to see what would happen. And when he sees that his wife eats of the fruit that God said not to eat, and she doesn't drop dead, it's almost like, oh, well. Because I think in his head he was thinking, man, if she drops dead, I'll be just like, hey, I got more ribs, God. Just make me another woman. You know, we'll be fine. He doesn't do what God has called him to do. And then he takes it and rebels against God. Now remember, this isn't just like God needs to take a chill pill because all he did was eat a, eat a fruit, like eat a piece of fruit, and God's going to curse the whole universe? Sounds like God was having a bad day, right? I mean, have you ever thought of that? Like, that just seems odd. No, this is not, it's not about eating a piece of fruit. It's about disobeying the God of the universe. It is about Adam and Eve saying, I will make my own decisions. I don't care what God says I should do. I will make decisions. I will be my own God. See, what Satan did is he got them to question God's word. Did God really say? Then to deny God's word, oh, you won't die if this happens. And then he promises the impossible. He says you will be more like God. You will become a God if you do this. See, he does the same thing to us today. Notice that Adam and Eve acted as if God wasn't there. In other words, they are now God. They will make their own decisions. And the God of the universe who created them is out of the picture. There is a satanic Bible. I'm not suggesting you buy this. But go on Amazon and you can find The Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. In that Bible, the key verse says this, Do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Notice how they make it sound like King James-ish, Bible-ish. Do what thou wiltest is the holest of the law, said this. Right? In other words, it's do whatever you want. Do what makes you happy. That's the whole of the law. If you want to be a Satanist, all you have to do is do what you want. Don't listen to anybody else. Don't listen to God. Just do what makes you happy. You are in charge of your life. Do what you want. For us as humans, that sounds pretty good. Like, I'll just do what I want to do. I will control my life. No one's going to control my life. See, we have it all wrong. We think the Hollywood version of a Satanist is you wear black, you dance around a fire, uh, you sacrifice animals, and you drink blood, right? I mean, isn't that the kind of the Hollywood version of Satanist, right? You want to be a Satanist? All you got to do is say to God, God, I'm going to live my life the way I want, not your way. I don't know about you, but I have done that in my life. I have told God, God, I know this is what I should do, but I want to do this. And somehow I convince myself that God is not paying attention. Bible goes on and says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Adam and Eve aren't like the best hide-and-go-seek people in the world, okay? 
It's not like God literally could not find them. Why does God say this? Because he wants them to admit what they have done. And they answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Oh, how typical, right? Blame game. Adam blames Eve. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She blames the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals and you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I want you to think about this. Why didn't Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit and drop over dead? I mean, God said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. The, the original Hebrew language, the, the exact translation is, dying you will die. Okay? Dying you will die. Meaning that the process of death has started. You were designed to live forever, but because of that rebellion against God, death and, and sin enters the picture. You are dying right now. I am dying much faster than you are. We all do four things. Four things that keep us alive. If you did not do these things, you will be dead in a very short period of time. What are they? You have to breathe. If you don't breathe, within five to seven minutes, you'll be dead. You have to drink liquids. You can last maybe three days, three, four days without water. Food, you have to eat food. You can go upwards of 40 days if you were on a hunger strike. And there's one last thing you have to do to not die. We don't think of it really off the top of our head, but it makes a lot of sense. You have to sleep, okay? I think you can go 48 to 60 hours um, without sleeping and, and not dying, and then, then you die. See, right now, your bodies are dying. We are just doing things to prolong it, okay? Here's the other thing. I firmly believe, the more I study this, that they should have died. But instead, God steps in, and in his mercy... He kills animals and takes their skins and clothes Adam and Eve because of their shame of being naked. Think about this. Adam and Eve should have died and God in his mercy takes the payment from somebody else. Interesting thought. Here's now what has happened. Here's what the Bible says because of that rebellion against God. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, 
but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And in Romans 8.22, it says, we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. The whole universe has been cursed. In other words, God said, okay, you want to live in a world in which I am not here? Let me give you just a little taste of it. And God, in the curse that's placed on the universe, takes some of his sustaining power out of the world. He doesn't take all of it or we'd all be dead. He took some and that is now why you have cancer and disease and murder and rape. It's just a little taste of what the world is like without God sustaining power. So here is where we're at because of that decision. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. From Psalm 13, 2 and 3. Romans 3.10 quotes from that verse in Psalms and says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. So you might ask the question, how are people saved if no one is seeking God? And you might, and you might struggle with this because I struggled with this. When you study salvation, you realize what really is going on because you and I think that somehow we have a part in this salvation. Put your hand in the air if you invited Jesus into your heart when you were younger. Okay? All right? You, you understand the non-biblical uh, idea of that? That somehow you and I did something in which then salvation came to us. We'll use these terms. I accepted the Lord as my, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I accepted. I did something. You, you want to study your Bible, you will find you did nothing. I did nothing. We aren't even capable of doing this. Why? Because the Bible says no one seeks after God. No one. Not a single person that's ever been born truly seeks after God. John Piper has this quote. It says, History is a conveyor belt of corpses because of Adam's sin. You and I are dead spiritually, and every single person that's been born since Adam and Eve are, were dead spiritually. Not just a little bit of life, not a little bit of seeking after God, dead. You have to understand human nature. Because of that disobedience in the garden, sin enters the world, and it's now a part of our DNA. Because Adam is the common ancestor of every human being, we all inherit that sin nature. We are born with a natural desire for rebellion, self-interest, and disobedience. Romans 7, 18, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Isaiah 64, 6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, our sin, like the wind, take us away. In ourselves, we cannot seek after God for the simple reason that seeking after God is a good and holy thing and sinful flesh is incapable of good and holy things. In other words, the only way we can seek God is if the Holy Spirit has first stirred our hearts with a desire for God. It is God who draws us to himself. John 6, 44. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. So I want you to seriously think about this. There are a lot of false conversions in American Christianity. Inviting Jesus into your heart, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, all those things. The truth of it is, you and I are a dead corpse at the bottom of the ocean. We think of salvation as we're drowning in the ocean and somebody throws us one of those big, you know, rings that are on the rope and you throw it out and and that's Jesus. He's the, the lifeguard ring. And somehow we reach out and we grab that ring and then they tow us in and save us. That's not a biblical description of salvation. Salvation is you and I are corpses at the bottom of the ocean and we've been dead for a long time. And God literally has to reach down into that ocean, that deepness of sin, and he has to activate your heart to start seeking after him. You and I do absolutely nothing, nor can we do anything, until God draws us. Okay? I'm not saying that. The Bible is saying that. I know most of you know this verse, but this underscores the truth of this. For by grace you are saved through faith, and it's not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, it is not from works, so that no one can boast. Even the faith to believe for salvation does not originate within our fleshly nature. God enables the fallen human heart to seek him, when in our own self-centered rebellion we would never do so. Every good thing originates with God. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So faith in God is a good thing, and so it also originates with God. The reality of sin is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even our best efforts fall short of the righteousness required by God. That's why Scripture says no one, absolutely no one, seeks after God. We seek fulfillment, we seek pleasure, we seek escape from pain, But the pure motivation of seeking after God for himself is a gift from God. We are not saved because we had the wisdom and insight to exercise our own faith and to trust God. No one wakes up one day and on his own decides to seek God. That would be salvation by our own works. And scripture is very clear that we are saved only by the grace and mercy of God. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And Romans eleven six says, but it is by grace. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Here is a picture of you and I. We have dead spiritual hearts. Dead. We're only saved when God touches our hearts and prompts us to use the faith he gives us to receive his gift of salvation. Even with the knowledge of God's existence everywhere, people naturally choose to suppress the truth by their wickedness. When God draws you to him, that's when your dead heart can become alive again. See, a alive heart feels the prick of sin hurting your conscience. A dead heart, have you ever thought to your non-Christian friends or maybe even to yourself, maybe yourself, you invited Jesus into your heart when you were a kid. And you've been coming to church and doing all these things, and, but you keep struggling and struggling and doing things you know you shouldn't do. And, and on a daily basis, you, you, you check off the God thing, you come on a Sunday, and then the rest of the week you live like everybody else. And then you wonder, like, how, like, how can this be? It's because 
maybe, just maybe, you've been duped into the American Christianity thing. And you really, truly have never repented of your sins. And maybe that's why your heart is dead. When your heart is like this, sin bothers you. It doesn't mean you live a perfect life, but it bothers you when you repent of that. See, we know that God exists. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Even with the knowledge of God's existence everywhere, people naturally choose to suppress the truth by their wickedness. Do you understand what that verse says? That verse basically says that every single person who has ever lived on this earth looks around at creation and knows there's a God. God doesn't believe in atheists. There is no such thing as an atheist. Every single person knows there is a God, but what do they do? They suppress the truth. They take that knowledge and they go, la, 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 because to believe that there is a God who you will be accountable to after you die, that becomes a serious, serious matter. And that is why most of us on this earth do not want to follow God. We rebel against God because we don't want anyone telling us what to do. Which takes us all the way back again to Genesis 3, 9, where it says, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Notice that God had to reach out to Adam and Eve because no one naturally seeks God. God seeks us. He saw Adam and Eve as they hid in the garden. Do you ever wonder why when you're involved in sin, it affects your spiritual relationship? You don't want to come to church. You don't want to read your Bible. You don't want to pray because you know what you are doing is wrong and you hide from God. Satan said, when you rebel against God, you will be like God. What an absolute lie. Does anybody really believe that Adam and Eve became more like God when they rebelled against him? It's the exact opposite. And Jesus has been seeking his lost loved ones ever since. Jesus really gave this as his mission statement. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So let's look at how all of these false gods we worship all stem from the biggest false god, the God of self. How about materialism? We worship at the altar of materialism, which feeds our need to build our egos through the acquisition of more stuff. Our homes are filled with all manners of possessions. We build bigger and bigger houses with more closets and storage space in order to house all the things we buy, much of which we haven't even paid for yet. Most of our stuff has planned obsolescence. In other words, it's planned to become obsolete. It's built into those things, making it useless in no time, and so we consign it to the garage or other storage space. Then we rush out to buy the newest item, garment, or gadget, and the whole process starts over. It is an insatiable desire for more, better, and newer stuff, and it's nothing more than covetousness. The Tenth Commandment, which we'll talk about in about nine weeks, tells us not to fall victim to coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God doesn't just want to rain on our buying sprees. He knows we will never be happy indulging our materialistic desires because it is Satan's trap. It is Satan's trap to keep our focus on ourselves and not on him. 
Second thing we do is we worship at the altar of our own pride and ego. This often takes the, uh, the form of obsession with careers and jobs. Millions of men and women spend 60 to 80 hours a week working. What do you think about that? 80 hours a week. That's if you work seven days a week, you'd have to work about 11 and a half hours a day. We work ourselves to death. Even on the weekends and during vacations, our laptops are humming and our minds are whirling with thoughts of how to make our business more successful, how to get that promotion, how to get the next raise, how to close the next deal. In the meantime, our children are starving for attention and love. I am so sorry if this has been you. And if this has been you, you need to stop that pattern in your family. And when you get married and you have your own children, you need to understand what is really important. And working yourself to death is not important. See, as parents, we fool ourselves into thinking we're doing it for our kids to give them a better life. But the truth is we are doing it for ourselves to increase our self-esteem by appearing more successful in the eyes of the world. And this is absolute folly. And it's killing your relationship with your kids or your relationship with your parents if your parents are caught up in this. I mean, think of what the American dream says. Stress yourself out and do all this stuff in, in high school so that you can have a good enough resume and a good enough GPA and enough AP classes and take all these college classes before you even get to college and then go to college and go to a college in which when you're out of college, you will be $100,000 in debt. And then when you get out of college, you get married and you buy a house also putting you in debt and then you got to have a car and then you look at the neighbors well they got two cars and you need two cars and well they've got a boat and they go on the rock river so now we need a boat and you've got all this stuff in order to keep all this stuff you have to work more and more and overtime and overtime and then when your kid wants to spend time with you you feel guilty because you can't be there so what do you do you buy stuff here look how much mom and dad loves you and as much as you might like the stuff at first I've talked to way too many teens who are sitting there and they're dying inside because they're like, Mom, Dad, I just want you. I want you to love me. I want you to spend time with me. And by the time they get out of their house, they've had no relationship. And now they have grandkids and they realize how they failed with their kids and they start to spoil their grandkids by buying them all kinds of stuff. Or maybe they finally are figuring it out and they're spending time with their grandkids. And then their kids are like, where was this mom and dad when I was a kid? And they become very jealous and they become very bitter about what happened. And then they retire. And a lot of times people retire from their job and within a year they're dead. Have you ever seen that happen? I remember when the GM plant, before that closed down, there were multiple friends that we knew that worked and worked and worked, and then they, when he retired, they didn't know what to do with their life, and they literally, within a year, died of a heart attack. That's killing yourself on the altar of worshiping the God of materialism. And then they die, and any stuff they had is given away, and you can't take it with you. That's the American dream. By golly, sure sounds good to me, not, right? All our labors and accomplishments will be of no use to us after we die nor will the admiration of the world because these things have no eternal value. King Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. 
This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief, and even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Next thing that we do is we idolize mankind through naturalism and the power of science. We cling to the illusion that we are lords of our world and we build our self-esteem to God-like proportions. We reject God's word and his description of how he created the heavens and the earth, and we accept the nonsense of atheistic evolution and naturalism. That's where that came from. I know God exists. I will suppress that knowledge. I will make myself feel better. So I will try and think up of a way that we can try and make sure that everyone knows that this whole world and everything in it got here with no God. It just happened. Nothing exploded. And everything came out of that. That's so stupid. I mean, give me a break. Think about it. Do you see how dumb, how foolish we have to get to try and get God out of the picture? We end up worshiping the creator. No, we should worship the creator, not his creation, but we worship his creation. We embrace the goddess of environmentalism. We fool ourselves into thinking that somehow we can preserve the earth indefinitely when God has declared that this current age will have an end. I want you to think about this. Let me preface this. I am not saying do not recycle. I am not saying do not take care of the earth. I'm not saying any of that. If you follow a biblical mandate, we, are, we were given dominion over the earth and we were to tend and take care of it. The Bible says take care of your animal. I mean, there's all kinds of things that would go with that. But I'm sorry, so much of our culture now worships nature. Nature is more important than people. Oh, there is a, a certain type of frog that lives in this little stream and we can't build a subdivision that will house people because that frog might become extinct. Now, I'm all for saving some frogs here and there. But when frogs take precedence over people, we've got it all mixed up. When a country has a one-child policy because you don't want to overpopulate the earth, do you realize the consequences for that? of what happens? If your first child is not a male in some countries and you have a girl, they kill the baby because their government says you can only have one child and they want a male child. Why? Because a male child will take your family name and it will live on. A female child will take the family name of her husband. And this happens in 2018. Did you know that all the people who are on earth, over 8 billion, every single person would fit in the state of Florida right now? And you are told that the, earth, the world is so overpopulated <laughs> that it, somehow we're doing wrong by having children and having more than one child? Those are all lies. It's worshiping the creation. It said there are people that, that literally think that humans are the enemy of the earth. And if humans went away, the earth would be better. And I think to myself, well, you're a human and you're saying this. Do you understand what you're saying? Like when you say that, you're saying you shouldn't be there. It's pretty crazy. Can I just reassure you? The world is not going to run out of resources. There's not going to be anything where the temperature heats up and, and the, all the icebergs melt and everything floods and all that. God is in control of what's happening to the earth. And this is what God says happens. 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. 
Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live a holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Can I say that global warming really does happen? It's because God literally melts the earth, the universe, and everything in it and starts over with a new creation. That's going to happen when God determines it's going to happen. Trust me, God's not thinking, oh no, this whole carbon footprint thing, I didn't think of that. What are we going to do? Oh, no. A volcano burps out more carbon in one second than all of mankind has emitted carbon into the atmosphere for all of human history. Okay? A lot of what's going on is absolutely false science. Absolutely false science. Now, again, I'm not saying don't take care of the earth. I'm not saying don't have clean air, all that stuff. I'm not saying that. But I am saying is that people worship the creation instead of the creator. Finally, and perhaps most destructively, we worship at the altar of self-fulfillment to the exclusion of all others and their needs and desires. In other words, we don't care about anybody else. We care about feeding our own desires. This manifests itself in self-indulgence through alcohol, through drugs, through food. Those in a very affluent countries have unlimited access to alcohol, drugs. Prescription use is at an all-time high. Did you know the United States uses, I don't know what exact uh, facts are, but somewhere between 70 and 90% of all prescription drugs in the whole world is used in our country. We over-medicate ourselves. Obesity rates in the U.S. have skyrocketed. Childhood diabetes brought on by overeating is an epidemic. The self-control we so desperately need is spurned in our insatiable desire to eat, to drink, and to medicate more and more. We resist any effort to get us to curb our appetites, and we are determined to make ourselves the God of our lives. This has its origin back to the Garden of Eden again, where Satan tempted Eve to eat of the tree with the words, you will be like God. This has been man's desire ever since, to be God. And as we have seen, the worship of self is the basis of all modern idolatry. All idolatry of self has its core in the three lusts that are found in 1 John 2.16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. 1 John 2.16. If we're to escape this modern idolatry, we have to admit that it's, a rampant, that it's rampant and we must reject it in all its forms. What's going on is not of God, it is from Satan. The great lie, the same one Satan has been telling since he first lied to Adam and Eve, and sadly, we are still falling for it. Even more sadly, many churches are propagating it in the preaching of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel built on the idol of self-esteem. We will never find happiness focusing on ourselves. Our hearts and our minds must be centered on God first and then others. And this is why when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And when we love the Lord and others with everything that is in us, there's not going to be room in our hearts for idolatry. You and I, have this thing that we think we know better than God in what to do with our lives. Think about that. The God of the universe who we exist because he wills it. 
If he wanted us dead, just like that, we drop dead. Every breath we take is a gift from God. He designed us. He picked where we would live. He created our DNA, and he has a plan and a purpose for our lives. Maybe not the plan and purpose you and I think we should have for our life, but the plan that God wants, the creator, is telling his creation, trust me. And you and I, we shake our fists at God. Puny little mortals like us, we shake our fist at God and we say, we know better than you. I'll run my own life. Thank you very much. And if that's you and you're struggling with that, and that's why you keep resisting what God is trying to do in your life, you need to repent of that. Because I want to ask you, how's that working for you so far? And if you can say, yeah, not too bad, come visit me in five or ten years and come stand up here and give a testimony that says, I did my own thing and let me tell you how great it's been. And how I can say that because I've done youth ministry for 34 years now. I'm old. 34 years. And I could tell you story after story of kids who will come back when they're 20, 25, 30, sometimes in their 40s. And they will say, I have made a mess of my life. I wish I would have listened to what God was trying to do in my life. And they have consequence after consequence. And so I'm begging you. I am pleading with you. If you have any stirring in your heart at all, that is a gift from God because nothing can stir unless God draws you to him. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this opportunity to just uh, talk about these things, Lord. I pray that uh, the students that are here will really take this to heart and uh, really think about it, Lord. I pray now that as we break into small groups that you would be with each leader as they lead that, Lord. I pray that the students will, you know, each time that we do this, feel a little more comfortable to be able to share um, the thoughts that they had on, on tonight. And we pray this in your name. Amen. There we go. That is part two of the Ten Commandments series that we've been doing on our youth group. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll be back next week with more Christian artists. Thanks. Have a great week.